You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that the king drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. James Ayton is a cancer survivor, and he also does interesting research around how people react and respond to trauma. And he wrote an article on that in the Washington Post, and one of his major points was to make meaning out of your trauma. He wrote about the limitation of a fairness worldview. A fairness worldview is if I'm a decent human being, life should be fair to me. And the limitation, he said in that article, of a fairness worldview is when bad things happen, it opens the door to be tempted to have a victim mindset where we have blame, shame, fear, isolation, and resentment. In the Washington Post, Dr. Aiton also shared about his personal experience with trauma. He was experiencing shooting, leg, shooting pains down his legs, so he went to the doctor, and he was completely unprepared to hear that the source of his pain was a malignancy, a tumor that was sitting on a bundle of nerves causing his pain. His thoughts began to spiral a little bit as the shock of an unexpected diagnosis of cancer reverberated through his mind. Back at his office, Dr. Aiton confided in a trusted uh, colleague about his experience, and she shared with him about how she went down and she volunteered with a relief agency after Hurricane Sandy. Down there, she met a man whose roof had been completely blown off of his home in gale force winds. The man shocked this colleague and her uh, relief team when he said, sometimes you have to lose the roof to see the stars. 
This mindset of making meaning from trauma is also found in the Japanese culture. Kitsukori is the Japanese word which means golden repair. It is the art of restoring broken pottery with gold so that the blemishes, the fractures in the pottery are literally illuminated. The perspective is not to hide brokenness, but to seek to build beauty out of the brokenness. Japanese artists of this persuasion believe that when an object has suffered damage, it has a story, a history, which makes it more beautiful and precious. Friends, today and for the next three Sundays, we're going to be learning about becoming an overcomer of trauma in life from the life of Daniel in the Old Testament. I'm really excited about that. A hard reality, but a very true reality of life is that trauma is part of life, isn't it? Young children, they fall off their bike, they break their wrist, and all of a sudden they experience physical pain on a level that they didn't know existed. Or a teenager can watch her parents get divorced, and, and the trauma of that and the pain of that can reverberate for decades in her life. Or a man can go through a hurricane and the roof literally blown off of his home. Trauma is a part of life. Next Sunday, as part of the message, we're going to see a, a short video clip called Bodie's Story. Bodie is uh, Peter and Melissa Maturko's three-year-old grandson who has been battling cancer. And you'll see what God has to say to us through Bodie's story. But again, it has to do with the trauma, three-year-old with cancer. So the question is, how can we be overcomers when trauma hits? How can we avoid becoming bitter victims who are stuck in the aftershocks of a past trauma? How can we have gold poured into the cracks of our brokenness, bringing beauty out of ashes? God's word gives us rock-solid truth on how we can be overcomers from the example of Daniel, one of the most amazing people in the, in the Bible. What's interesting is Daniel was taken captive when most biblical scholars say that he was either 16 or 17 years old. He was a teenager. So what we are going to study this morning is a 16 or 17-year-old and what they're going through. It's amazing. And he was taken to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. Look, if you would, at verses 1 and 2 in your Bible. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, that's an alternative name for Babylon, to the house of his God, Nebuchadnezzar's God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. What we've just read has been verified by historians, not only from biblical evidence, but corroborated by extra-biblical evidence from Jewish and Babylonian history records, and it happened in 605 B.C. From 931 B.C., under King Solomon's son, King Jer uh, Rehoboam, until Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar came here in 605, during those 300-plus years, God had sent his prophets consistently to Israel saying, come back to me, return to me, or eventually judgment would come. But they continued to reject him, go their own way, choose sin, and uh, for over 300 years as he urged them time and again to return to him. And finally, God withdrew his hand of protection and allowed Israel and Judah to experience the consequences of their rejection of his leadership. This shows the nature of God. 
which the Lord uh, gave a self-description of who he was when he met Moses on the mountain in Exodus chapter 34. And this is how God described himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. At first glance, when you read that scripture, it seems that God is bipolar, huh? That on one hand, he's slow to anger and forgives. On the other hand, you know, he doesn't allow the, the guilty to, to uh, lose their guilt and consequences of the father's son, father's sin to the third and fourth generation. But it isn't bipolar or schizophrenic. It shows the, the complex but the beautiful glory of Almighty God. God is slow to anger. God is eager to forgive. God is love. But God is also just. Sin has consequences. Evil is punished. Ultimately, the right thing will always win. Yet, for instance, a woman broken as a child by abuse, if it's left unhealed, will pass the dysfunction down to her daughters and granddaughters. Therapists tell us that if our trauma is not transformed, it will be transmitted. Galatians 6, 7 says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A person reaps what they sow. The one who sows to please his sin nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Holy Spirit will reap eternal life. If a person's exercise routine, for instance, is shotgunning Twinkies and, and binge-watching watching Stranger Things on Netflix, it shouldn't come as a complete shock if their BMI and their blood sugar are both high. You know, behavior has consequences. For over 300 years, the vast majority of Israel's kings, they rebelled against God's life-giving leadership. They practiced, as we see in the scriptures, idolatry and greed and violence and selfishness and immorality and injustice. Finally, after being patient for over 300 years, notice what Daniel 1-2 says, the Lord gave over King Jehoiakim to King Nebuchadnezzar. Sometimes trauma is the result of our own bad decisions, isn't it? But sometimes we experience trauma because of other people's bad decisions, and that was the case with Daniel here. Daniel was a righteous young man. He was 100% committed to walking with the Lord, as we'll see in the next four weeks. But as a teenager, he was taken into captivity to Babylon, not because of anything he had done, but because he was caught up in the judgment that God brought upon his wicked nation. And make no mistake about it, Daniel experienced trauma. He witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. He saw people die, even loved ones. He was separated permanently from his family. He was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, which is further than Los Angeles, to Dallas. Then he was thrown into a culture with beliefs and values antithetical with Jewish worldview. And then he was surrounded by jealous uh, co-workers who wanted to destroy his life, which we'll see in a few weeks in Daniel and the lion's den. Daniel knew trauma, but one of the major lessons from his life is Daniel overcame trauma. Look down at verse 3, if you would. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, 
the chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the, Lord, in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Hananiah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he named Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were members of King Jehoiakim's royal family. These, these four teens, as we read in the, in the scripture here, were good-looking, they were strong, well-educated, intelligent young men. And King Nebuchadnezzar, like any strong leader, was always looking for new talent to add to his team, so he eagerly uh, snatched up these four young men and brought them to Babylon to be able to add them to his, his uh, retinue of counselors. But Nebuchadnezzar demanded complete loyalty to his leadership in the culture of Babylon, which became a problem for Daniel and his friends, a lifelong problem. The education of the Chaldeans, which is another word for the Babylonians, included theology in the many gods of Babylon. It included education in pagan practices, which included uh, looking at chicken bones to try to discern the future. And their Jewish names were then changed to Babylonian names. It's interesting to see the Hebrew meaning of their given names, their birth names. Daniel means God is my judge. In other words, God will give me justice. Hananiah means God is gracious. God will give me his favor. Mishael means as God is. In other words, God has perfect integrity. God always acts in keeping with his wonderful, perfect character. Azariah means God is my strength. God will protect and empower me all the days of my life, like what we read in Psalm 23. In ancient cultures, especially Jewish and Babylonian cultures, names and their meanings were significant. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's name showed their identity as God's children. The question is, which God? And they met the Jewish God, the eternal God who created the universe, the God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, the God who is the judge who brings justice to his children and punishes evil, the eternal God of the universe, the big G, capital G God, that God. Now compare those names with the Babylonian names that Nebuchadnezzar's ser servant Ashpenaz gave the four uh, Hebrew prisoners. Daniel became Belshazzar, which means Bel protects my life. Bel, or his other alternative name, Marduk, was one of the hundreds of gods in the Babylonian pantheon in their culture. Hananiah was renamed Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Aku was the moon god in Babylon. Mishael was renamed Meshach, which means who is like Aku, the moon god. And Azariah was named Abednego, which means servant of Nabu. Nabu was the son of Marduk or Bel. Whereas the Jewish worldview was monotheistic, believing in one almighty, eternal creator God who is king of the universe, Babylonian worldview was polytheistic, believing in many gods. 
Now, it wouldn't be a problem in, in Babylon if the Jews just brought another god to add to their pantheon. The issue we'll see throughout Daniel uh, was that the Jews believed in one eternal creator god, king of the universe, to the exclusion of the fertility gods, the god of the river, the god of the forest, the moon god, the sun god, the god of death, the god of war, etc., etc., etc. Today you can travel to Berlin, Germany, and you can go into the Pergamon Museum and see a reconstruction of the Ishtar Gate from ancient Babylon. Ishtar was the Babylonian god of fertility, love, and war. According to the historian Herodotus, the city of Babylon had eight gates, and each one of those gates were dedicated to a different Babylonian god. Herodias wrote that the walls of Babylon were 80 feet thick, 320 feet high, and 56 miles in circumference. The population of Babylon in Daniel's day was over 100,000, which made it the largest city in the known world at that time. Babylon's hanging gardens, which Nebuchadnezzar developed, were one of the wonders of the world. It was the most amazing city in the ancient world. But another significant stressor for Daniel and his three Jewish friends was serving a pagan god in a pagan culture that was diametrically opposed, antithetical to the worldview, the values, the beliefs of the Jewish religion. And that's what we see starting in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, verse 8, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king Nebuchadnezzar, who assigned your food and drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward over the chief of the eunuchs who was assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables. The Hebrew word there means not only vegetables, but also grains. Vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So the servant listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh, in better shape than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. A major theme that we will see today in the next few weeks here in the, the uh, book of Daniel uh, is his grit. Here is a 16, 17-year-old who is in a prisoner of war in a foreign country saying, I, I can't eat this food because it's been defiled by being offered to your gods. So while Daniel was in Babylon culture, his commitment to Lord Almighty didn't allow him to be of the Babylonian culture. Daniel was in, but not of, Babylon. Think of the guts, the, the courage, the resilience, the downright grit of a teenage Jewish boy to say to the dominant culture, which could kill him, I can't eat the king's food. So what happened? Look down at verse 18. At, uh, 
At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Cyrus was with the, the Medo-Persian uh, empire, really an interesting character in the Old Testament. Can't get into that today, but he conquered Babylon, we know from historical records outside of the Bible, in, nine, in, in 539 B.C. when Daniel was 83 years old. So in the next four weeks, we're going to go from teenage Daniel to elderly Daniel. It's really interesting. Along with Daniel's grit, another major theme we need to pick up in the Scripture in overcoming trauma is God's grace. God's grace is the X factor in overcoming trauma. Daniel's grit and God's grace were essential for Daniel to survive and thrive in a hostile culture. Notice in verse 17, I tried to emphasize it with my voice. God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. Then look down at verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Don't miss this. It's so important. God was helping Daniel by his grace. It's incredible how the Bible makes it clear that God gives his help to those who, like Daniel, make a gritty 100% burn-the-ships commitment to the Lord. Uh, in the coming weeks, we'll explore the question of how to raise a mature, healthy, amazing teen like Daniel and his three friends. Teenage Daniel showed grit here in refusing the king's food, which could be grounds for being beheaded. Then decades later, at 80-plus years of age, he was thrown into the lion's den, but he showed grit. You see, grit isn't a one-and-done kind of thing. It's something we need throughout our life. And Daniel showed it when he was a young teen, and he showed it when he was an old man. It's important, as noted before, for us to see that Daniel's trauma wasn't Daniel's fault. He had to live with the dire consequences due to living in Israel, who for 300 plus years had a history of rebelling and going their own way instead of following the Lord. And the Lord is slow to anger, as we read in Exodus chapter 34, but he's also just, as we read in Exodus chapter 34. It takes a long time, but there comes a time when God says, enough is enough. We see this in Romans chapter 1, where it says in verse 24, God gave them over to the lust of their heart, to impurity. Then in verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Sin is its own punishment, isn't it? 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God being just must hold us accountable for our lives and for our sin. If we rebel and ignore God, he can, like a parent of an incorrigible teenager, eventually throw up his hands and say, have your own way. At that point, God withdraws his protection like he did to Jerusalem, and the hordes of hell attack without God's protection, intent on killing us and our families and our nation. In other words, Daniel reminds us, we can't play games with God. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath 
when God's righteous judgment shall be revealed. Daniel reminds us of the truth taught in the Bible that we are more broken and sinful than we could ever imagine. But the Bible also teaches that we are more precious to God and loved by God than we can imagine. Not one or the other, but both. The Bible makes it clear God takes no delight in the judgment and death of the wicked. It says that in Ezekiel. God takes great delight when sinners humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways. We see that in the prodigal son. The Bible is clear that the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is the way that we can be healed from trauma, the way we can overcome trauma, and the way that we can prepare for trauma. Jesus on the cross took the consequences, the punishment of our sin, the wrath of God for our sin, and the sin of the world. So when, in humble faith, we turn from sin and confess our sin to God, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are no longer under the wrath of God. But if we don't repent of our sin and turn to Jesus in faith, the Bible is clear that our debt to justice still has an outstanding balance that must be paid in full, one way or the other. The ultimate consequence of being under God's wrath is hell. Hell is eternal separation from God's presence. Since light and life and every good thing, every blessing flows from God's presence, to be separated from God is to be separated from life. It's to be separated from love, separated from joy, separated from security and loved ones and community and, and beauty and creativity. I believe that God doesn't send people to hell, but God allows people to have the consequence of their free will decision to ignore and rebel against God. The Bible is clear in the book of Revelation that God created the lake of fire, hell, for the devil and his demons. It isn't his will that any should perish, as it says in Ezekiel. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but wants all to be saved, as it tells us in 2 Peter. C.S. Uh, Lewis said it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Israel committed spiritual adultery against God, and after 300 plus years, God said, enough is enough, your will be done. And he removed his hand of protection which allowed the Babylonians to come in to murder and rape and pillage and destroy Jerusalem. That's a sobering thought we need to let sink into our souls. It says in Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, just as a person is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, we all must give account for our lives. Religion, what it says is I will work and try harder. I will reform myself. I will, just, I will just pick myself up by my bootstraps to try to be acceptable to God. But it says in the Message Bible, it says self-help is no help. God's standard is absolute perfection, which we can't make. And so when we try to do it through our own efforts, it's like trying to jump to the moon. It's impossible. The Bible is clear that only by faith in Jesus Christ can our sins be atoned for and we can become new people who are not under God's wrath but under his eternal favor. Romans 3 says it this way, 
This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. Just before we worship God and draw near to Jesus through the sacraments, let's just apply this scripture to our lives. I have four things to say about that briefly. The first application, overcoming trauma from the example of Daniel in Daniel chapter 1 is one. First is be brave. Like Daniel, be brave. Courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is doing the right thing in the face of fear. Bravery is doing the right thing even if you're the only one. Like Daniel, be brave. Number two, refuse to see yourself as a victim. Refuse to see yourself as a victim. Daniel was a prisoner of war. He had experienced all kinds of, of uh trauma. He had seen the worst of humanity. He was hated simply for being Jewish, as we'll see in the next few weeks. Yet he saw himself as a valued, empowered, loved child of God, not as a victim. To overcome trauma, we need to be empowered. Victims see themselves as powerless. But when God is with us, we are never a victim. In Christ, no matter what the circumstances, Ultimately, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the first application, be brave. Second application, refuse to see yourself as a victim. Third application, treat adversaries with respect. Notice Daniel never was disrespectful toward his Babylonian conquerors. We can't overcome and be healed of our trauma if we get stuck in being bitter and outraged or triggered. Daniel's God was bigger than his trauma. He trusted the Lord in all circumstances. Daniel was wise in choosing to be an adult, even as a teenager. The last and most important application from the scripture to overcome trauma, be healed from trauma, prepare for future trauma, is to seek a deep connection with God. We'll see in the next three weeks how prayer and his private walk with the Lord was incredibly important to the type of life that Daniel lived. For us to be able to be healed of our past trauma, to navigate and overcome today's trauma, and then to be able to prepare for trauma that may be right around the corner, we need to grow deep roots into our relationship, our private walk with Christ. That's the preparation that needs to take place. God said in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart. If you seek God in faith, he'll pour his grace upon you like he did for Daniel in 600 BC. I'm fortunate to count uh, Paul Young as a, a good friend of mine. And Paul wrote The Shack, which uh, has sold over 22 million copies. It was turned into a movie whose cast included, remember, Tim, uh, Live Like You're Dying McGraw. Uh, love his music. But what most people don't know is the backstory to The Shack. As a child, Paul was, uh, his parents were missionaries, and so he was put in a missionary school, and, and they went to a, a different country, and he was left there, and, and sadly to say, he was abused. And so he grew up severely broken inside, which led him eventually, through his behavior, to blow up his marriage and break his relationship with his six children and lose his job. He had to take a, a job at a local elementary school, even though he had a master's degree as an assistant custodian. 
Out of that trauma, Paul found by God's grace healing for his broken life. It took years, but Paul, with God's help, rebuilt his family. One year, after he was reconciled with his wife, his wife asked him for Christmas to write a letter to his six kids just describing how did God heal him. And so Paul started writing, and just before Christmas, he went down to Kinko's, and he made six copies for his kid, and that was the shack. That's how it came to be. Paul had experienced trauma, abandoned by parents when he was a defenseless little kid, physically, emotionally, religiously, and sexually abused, facing divorce, the hatred of his devastated children because he had betrayed their mother, living with shameful secrets for decades that held him in addiction and private shame. Yes, 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 all of those things. But my friend Paul and his family, I've seen it, today are healthy, they overcame trauma, And so, friends, what God did for Daniel in 600 B.C., what he did for Paul Young, what he's done for me, he's no respecter of persons, he will do for you and for your family. Don't give up. God is greater than our trauma. 